slavish denial in some parts of the government to, I think, the president's personal whim of denying climate change is, uh, well, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad, but it's actually pretty sad. It is change on a scale that I think in the middle latitudes we don't understand. The U.S. is not ready for that. And so if, if, if on the U.S.'s part, the, the goal is to contain Russia and China's economic or security interest in the Arctic, but at the same time, the U.S. is weakening the Arctic Council through strong rhetoric, through uh, refusing to sign joint declarations, that kind of in the long term plays into Russia's and China's hands. It's easy to forget that the U.S. is an Arctic nation, but that fact could become a lot more apparent as sea ice continues to melt, opening up new shipping routes and economic opportunities, while also threatening ecosystems and intensifying geopolitical tensions. Is this the end of the polar peace zone? We discuss in this episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor at Green Tech Media. And we have Shane Skelton on the line, a Republican, a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific, and a former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. And here with me is Brandon Hurlbutt, our Democrat, partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners, and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Stephen Chu. In a moment, we'll head north, figuratively that is, to learn about the potential for heightened security threats in the Arctic due to melting sea ice. Earlier this month, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo accused Russia and China of aggressive behavior in the northern region. The U.S. then refused to sign an Arctic Council declaration because it made reference to climate change. We'll speak with retired Rear Admiral David Titley, meteorology professor at Penn State University, and Malta Humpert, founder of the Arctic Institute, about the significance of these recent events. But first, speaking of the Arctic, I wanted to note that we'll soon be flying over it, or at least close to it, on our way to Vienna for the R20 Austrian World Summit next week. We'll be there to talk about climate and energy issues along with Arnold Schwarzenegger and other leaders in the space like UN Chief Antonio Guterres and climate strike leader Greta Thunberg. Are you guys excited or what, Brandon? Political climate goes to Europe. <laughs> Euro trip. So for our audience, I only just recently learned who Greta Thunberg is, but Julia is like obsessed. This might be the most exciting interview we do in political climate season two for Julia. I mean, that's not wrong. Have you seen Greta Thunberg speak? If we get lucky enough to get an interview with her, I will be thrilled because she's incredibly well-spoken. She holds political leaders to task. She's inspiring a whole new generation to engage on climate issues. And she's actually also on the on the cover of Time recently and has made a huge splash on social media. So, yeah, that that's someone I want to speak to. Speaking of social media, Julia only cares about likes and followers. And I had my social Not media entirely. moment of my life this week. I was at the LAFC game. Thank God Shane was not there because there was an AOC banner at the game. And I took a picture of it and tweeted it. I don't I think I've ever that. gotten more than 12 likes on any tweet in I my was life. I was jealous. And then it got like, it caught fire on the Twitter. And I want to retire oh now because I'll never Twitter. have, I'll never have another tweet that like that good in my life. It was kind of crazy. I was really proud of your social media use because 
I've tried to get you to tweet more and that's been like pulling teeth. And then you do this one tweet out of nowhere and it goes semi-viral. And I was actually quite proud, um, which was interesting. I was cracking up, Brandon, because when I saw you'd mentioned that, I, I looked at the tweet. I always look at the comments because that's where I get to really get to you know understand where people are at. And there were like some fun ones and some nice ones and complimentary ones of you. Uh, an AOC. And then there was like one guy from, from uh, Queens, I guess, who was like, she's ours, get your own. And I can't tell if people like that are serious, but I feel like maybe yes. Like, I'm not sure. Oh no. And then it got worse. I was called like an idiot. There was like a green blob thing. That somebody <laughs> tweeted at me. That was so weird. That This is why I hate Twitter. It's the Aww. worst of humanity. Don't take everything from Twitter. I'll give you a hug after. Don't let it affect you. You should your, see like uh, Julia's emotion. eyes. Like there's a sparkle in her eye. You know, like I've never been, my stock has never been higher with Julia. than <laughs> The fact that I had like a popular tweet. I mean, as a, I'm a good millennial, a good media millennial. Uh, no, but like the point that you made in that tweet was interesting, that here you are in Los Angeles and a banner of a New York congresswoman, a freshman, is being you know flown around the stadium, which is just kind of incredible that her, her movement has caught on in such a big way. I mean, I've watched thousands of sporting events in my life. I've never seen a banner for a politician, much less a member of the House of Representatives, uh, especially like a New York member in L.A., like that to me meant something. It was very cool. Yeah, it's odd. Like you see stuff like that, which is pretty rare because I agree with you. I watch a lot of sporting events and you just don't often see House members, you know, uh, memorialized in some way. But then I talk to other people and I'm kind of excited about what we're doing in the energy and climate space. So I'll talk about, you know, you guys know I'm not a big fan of the Green New Deal, but I'll, I'll have to use it for context. People don't know what the heck I'm talking about. So it, it, it there are so many different worlds out there. And it's kind of funny to see that there are certainly a lot of people in LA uh, who are impressed with her sufficient to put a flag up at a soccer game and others who, you know, I think are pretty educated and politically involved and just have really no idea who this is or, or what this movement is. Yeah. I mean, we do live in different kind of echo chambers, so I don't find that entirely surprising, but uh, just the fact that her face was, was in the LA stadium at all, I think was noteworthy and worth a like on Twitter. So I made sure to throw you one. One of the 1,000 or so. I get a compliment from Julia like once every six months. So it'll be another like six Store months them away before. for the winter. <laughs> <laughs> compliment winter is coming. <laughs> there, oh. Sorry, someone had to do it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. So another thing I want to touch on before we dig into our content this week is a recent op-ed by Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, where he talked about the need to tackle climate change as part of an infrastructure plan. Senator Ed Markey, who co-authored the Green New Deal resolution, also outlined a vision for a green infrastructure package this week. And Schumer and Pelosi have actually met with the president, President Trump, a few times this year to talk about infrastructure policy. And it looked like progress was being made until now, as we record, it appears that the talks are breaking down. Trump has allegedly walked out of a meeting with the Democratic leaders, angered over ongoing investigations into his administration. So let's just play pretend here. Uh, Shane, so say this political storm blows over. Do you think Republicans could get on board with including climate measures in an infrastructure bill? I think the climate elements that presumably Senator Schumer is talking about would be things that, that Trump would actually be very much for. So, you know, in the worst case scenario, I think Trump is indifferent. In the best case scenario, I think he's for it. But when you're talking about an infrastructure bill, he called you're it not a talking about... It's not indifference. <laughs> Wait, you're... Well, I'm sorry? He called climate change a hoax. I don't think that's indifferent. Again, right, what I was trying to say was you're talking about an infrastructure bill, not an energy bill or an environmental bill. So what you're talking about is um, more resilient transmission infrastructure, distribution infrastructure. You're talking about 
you know, electrifying grid enhancements, things that actually reduce carbon emissions through infrastructure or make our infrastructure stronger and more resilient to combat, you know, the effects of climate that we're already seeing. So, Brandon, tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I agree that if you said, here's an infrastructure bill and we're going to write, you know, mandate that EPA put 17 new regulations in place about uh, carbon emissions from from power plants, then, then I think you're right. I think that would be a poison pill. But to the extent that you're talking about building and investing in smarter infrastructure um, that that will make our, our economy more resilient and 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 reduce, you know, decarbonize, even if that's not Trump's goal. Look, for example, at the example you raised last week with Workhorse. Uh, Trump likes the idea of building cars. He doesn't care that the trucks that they're going to be building at the factory are EVs. He thinks it's cool that they're being built. I see infrastructure in much the same way. Whatever we can get done, because he's been so hostile and uh, and his comments on this issue have been so ridiculous, whatever we can get done uh, in this next year and a half, and if it's you know on a resiliency or infrastructure uh, framework, uh, we'll take what we can get. Well, as we record, the odds are not looking good. Infrastructure has been long touted as this bipartisan action item that never seems to see any real action, but we'll be watching for it. Just a final note for you guys. If you look at any Republican infrastructure plan over the last several years, especially in the Senate, um, they have included a lot of language on adaptation and resilience. So this is not a new concept. This is not something that that's, I I think, going to be a poison pill for Republicans. I think it's good for Senator Schumer to message it because he has to show his base that, you know, we're tackling climate in every which way. But but the the types of investments that would both, you know, mitigate future climate impacts and also, you know, make current infrastructure more resilient have always been included in bipartisan bills. And that's not a new thing. The Arctic region is warming faster than anywhere else on the planet. And with that comes both opportunity and risk. Earlier this month, the Arctic Council, comprised of eight nations bordering the Arctic as well as indigenous groups, met in Finland to frame a collaborative agenda on economic development and environmental protection. But for the first time since the Council's inception, participants failed to sign a joint declaration after the U.S. resisted a diplomatic push to address the worst effects of climate change, sparking fury and confusion. Instead, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo used the Arctic Council Forum to warn China and Russia against, quote, aggressive actions in the region. He described the rapidly warming Arctic as a land of opportunity and abundance, referencing its untapped reserves of oil, gas, uranium, gold, fish, and rare earth minerals. We're entering a new age of strategic engagement in the Arctic, he said, complete with new threats to Arctic interests and its real estate. Pompeo's remarks came as a shock to many observers because the Arctic Council's mandate has nothing to do with security issues. In a moment, we'll hear from Malta Humpert, senior fellow and founder of the Arctic Institute, about the significance of Pompeo's statements and takeaways from the latest Arctic Council summit. But first, we speak with retired Rear Admiral David Titley about the scope of Arctic warming and some of the consequences. Titley is a member of the Center for Climate and Security's Advisory Board. He holds a PhD in meteorology and is the founding director of the Center for Solutions to Weather and Climate Risk at Penn State University. He previously served for 32 years as a naval officer, where he initiated and led the U.S. Navy's Task Force on Climate Change. Admiral, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, We want to hear from you uh, to sort of ground our discussion in the changes in the Arctic and the geopolitical dynamics that are changing as a result of changes in the Arctic. What are the issues playing out there? What is the science telling us about climate change, what it's doing to the ice in the Arctic, and then how is that affecting, you know, what countries are doing and how they're reacting? 
Okay, those are, those are really good questions and really big questions. So first, the changes in the Arctic are being driven by, by a changing climate, and the reason the climate is changing is because of uh, human influence. Basically, we are putting more and more greenhouse gases, primarily carbon dioxide, a few others as well, and we're putting them into the atmosphere at a volume and at a rate that is changing the climate. And one of the kind of weird things that maybe not everybody is aware of is that whenever the climate changes, whether it's for natural causes, as has happened you know, millions of years in the past, or human causes, like what's happening right now, is the climate actually changes faster and fastest up in the Arctic, up in the high latitudes, than it does relative, let's say, the tropics, or even where most of us live, in the, in the mid-latitudes. We think we understand why, not totally, but as far as, like, if you're not a scientist, if you're just somebody either living in the Arctic or you're thinking about what the impacts are, it doesn't really matter why, but it is happening. So what we have seen happening is we've seen these really weird events in the Arctic, like a couple of winters ago, or several winters ago now, we have seen rainfall up near the North Pole. We've seen temperatures in January and February in the height of the Arctic winter near the North Pole up around freezing. It's supposed to be minus 30. I mean, so this is like, you know, 60, 70 degrees above normal. It's just crazy. As you can imagine, if you have temperatures that much warmer than average, ice doesn't do so well. So what we are seeing is not only is the extent of ice coming down, especially in the late summer and early fall, but the thickness is coming down. It used to be that the Arctic had a whole lot, like almost half of the Arctic Ocean was covered in, in what we would call multi-year ice. That's just a fancy term for really old, really thick, like six, seven, eight, nine feet uh, of very, very hard ice. And nowadays, what we've seen is that multi-year ice is down to maybe 10 or 11 percent of the Arctic and decreasing every year. So the ice is now what's there is much, much thinner, much less stable, much easier to break up. I mean, we've even had scientists uh, lose their lives, tragically, in the last few years because the ice breaks up so fast they could not get out of their ice camps. We had some Canadian scientists die that way, I think, just one or two years ago. So as that ice melts out, that really opens up the Arctic good or bad, I won't put a value judgment on it, but it opens it up for much more greatly increased human use. So what, what does that mean? There could be greatly increased uh, resource extraction. So everybody thinks of oil. It's probably actually more natural gas, but there's a lot of other minerals up in the Arctic, uh, nickel, iron, cobalt, including like rare earths, you know, the kind of metals that we need to make batteries if we're going to use, let's say, renewables and battery storage, and even our smartphones, uh, that, the kind of metals that go into that. We're seeing tourism greatly increase. I mean, even like these big multi-thousand passenger cruise ships now are making one or two trips through the Arctic in the summer, something that would have been unheard of even five years ago. And then finally, we're seeing the beginnings of potentially major shipping routes. And really, the shipping routes now in the world are really the warehouses of today, because everything is just-in-time shipping. Increasingly, we are seeing more and more shipping companies exploring what could be done with, let's say, an Asia to Europe route that goes across the top 
of the world rather than going through, let's say, down by Singapore, down by the equator, and, uh, and through, the, uh, through the Suez Canal. And this can save days and even weeks of shipping time. So with that said, what are some of the security implications of all of this? Well, the security implications are, are several for the United States. So I'll speak from a United States perspective. So one, uh, the U.S., not everybody re- remembers this or realizes this. We're an Arctic nation. The state of Alaska, uh, a fair amount of it is actually above the Arctic Circle, and it has an extensive border on the Arctic Ocean and in the Bering Strait itself. So we are an Arctic nation. I shouldn't have to say that because, I mean, you know, if if I asked people, like, well, why do we care about the Gulf of Mexico, they'd all kind of look at me and it's like, well, duh. You know, we have Florida and Alabama and Mississippi and Texas and Louisiana down there. So, of course, we care, right? Well, mm-hmm. the same thing. So that's, that's one part. Uh, the other part is when we take a look at the resources up there, we, through not only our sovereign territory, but also our exclusive economic zone and potentially even extended continental shelf, have lawful under international law uh, control and right to those resources. So again, if you use the Gulf of Mexico as an analogy, you know, of course we have strategic interest for our energy sources there. We have the same kind of interest in the Arctic. I mentioned uh, that the shipping lines are changing. So one of the things that the United States Navy has done really since its inception in the Royal Navy before us is to really guarantee the free flow of trade and commerce around the world. You know, so much of our economy, and again, this could be a subject of another show, right, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, but we are really a globalized economy right now. And a globalized economy depends on those container vessels, those ships, because, because basically 90% of commerce moves by sea. It doesn't, it doesn't fly in aircraft, but it, it moves by sea. And, and if somebody else was able to cut or interdict those shipping routes, that affects everybody's job and everybody's, you know, in our economy in a most fundamental way in the United States. If you stop the shipping routes, you know, in about five to ten days, you would basically shut down the U.S. economy. So, so we certainly care about, about that. So what are Russia and China doing in the Arctic? We know that uh, Russia is on the Arctic Council. China is an observer on that council. Russia is doing some military exercises in the Arctic. China is looking at the, the polar silk road, as I understand it, those shipping lines that you're talking about. What does their activity mean for the U.S. and the potential threat there? So I'm, I would be cautious in calling it a threat, but I think we would be very wise to pay very close attention to what, what those two powers are doing. So when I mentioned that the U.S. Is, is an Arctic nation, Russia is really the Arctic nation. They have 50% of the Arctic coastline. Uh, 20% roughly of their population lives north of the Arctic Circle. Roughly 20% of Russian GDP comes from resource extraction in the, in the Arctic. As rough comparison for the United States, less than 1% of both our population and our GDP come from our Arctic regions. So Russia really is the Arctic nation. And one of the things they use is they use that, what we call that northern sea route, or basically 
think of a, a sea line that goes across the top of Russia, uh, you know, across the top of Siberia, really is almost an internal uh, transport system. It's actually a lot easier to move things along that along that route than it is through almost non-existent rail or, or road networks through northern Russia there. So the Russians are very, very interested at further developing that Arctic. The Russians, being Russian, God bless them, are also paranoid. So they have actually put a lot of effort and resources into, into their military up in, the, up in the Arctic. And if that military just stayed in the Arctic, I'm not sure it's a huge threat. But a lot of times they will use that military in places far beyond the Arctic. So one of the things we usually say about the Arctic is it's not like Las Vegas. What happens in the Arctic does not always stay in the Arctic. So if you see the Russian military, they can and continue to put work into being able to effectively operate in the Arctic, but they can also surge out of the Arctic, you know, through basically waters controlled by Norway and then into the northern Atlantic, and then either down into the Mediterranean, even off to the U.S. East Coast. So we care about that. What the Chinese are doing is a little bit different. It looks like the Chinese are trying to hedge their energy supplies. So the Chinese are you know, always concerned that the US or some other power might cut off a lot of energy coming up through the South China Sea. But even if you look at even further south from there, that, that oil has to get through several narrow straits, like the Strait of Malacca between uh, Indonesia and Singapore. And uh, the U.S. has good relations with both those countries, and China, frankly, is always worried that, well, maybe we would stop that oil. So if they can develop either pipelines through Russia and or even a sea route across the north of Russia, they feel that, I believe, they, that diversifies their energy supplies, diversifies their trade routes, and makes them less susceptible to Western pressure there. Now, they've got to work with the Russians, and the Russians got to work with the Chinese, and there's a lot of historical distrust or enmity. But right now, I would say that is a tactical alliance of convenience for, uh, for both of those countries. It's interesting to me, given how much we hear China and Russia in the news politically to do with either elections or trade policy, and rarely with respect to the Arctic I think, as you mentioned, because I think a lot of Americans forget that the country is even an Arctic nation. So is the United States ready for a melting Arctic? There's obviously military concerns. There's economic opportunity. Uh, I ask because even just earlier this year, there's a discussion of the White House starting a climate council that may even call into question some of the links between climate change and national security and the, the large body of research around that. And then, of course, in recent weeks, we have the U.S. not agreeing and signing on to an Arctic Council declaration that would have mentioned climate change as part of it. Of course, the Arctic Council does not address security head on, but uh, it is a major diplomatic exercise, as I understand it. So is the U.S. taking the Arctic seriously enough? Is the U.S. ready for the Arctic? So since I'm at Penn State University and I teach and, uh, you know, I have to give out final grades, and we just did that for this semester, uh, my grade would be somewhat like for your, your baby boomers and maybe your Gen Xers who, who listen, who know how to use a podcast. Uh, I would give them the grade that Lucy of the Peanuts uh, cartoon strip uh, got a lot, a D minus minus. Yeah, that's about where we are. On our research side, 
the U.S. is actually pretty good. We are well respected. We do very good research in the Arctic. You know, that's like a B plus. We, we really do pretty well. And the only reason I don't give them an A is because we probably don't do as much as we should be doing. As far as like thinking about the Arctic in a strategic sense, we, we, we just don't do that. We mostly ignore it. And then if something happens, we kind of maybe have a knee-jerk reaction. In this administration in particular, we don't seem to be either able or willing to work with partners. Sometimes, like the recent remarks made by the Secretary of State at the Arctic Council, as you mentioned, the Arctic Council does not, by charter, does not do hard security. Yet, yet that was seemed to be the primary issue he raised. It's not that we shouldn't have concerns with both Russia and China and have better understanding, but the Arctic Council is probably not the time or place to raise them. And so I thought that was unfortunate. Our slavish denial in some parts of the government to, I think, the president's personal whim of denying climate change is... Uh, well, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad, but it's actually pretty sad. It is change on a scale that I think in the middle latitudes we don't understand. The U.S. is not ready for that. You mentioned earlier that we shouldn't necessarily characterize China and Russia's actions as a threat. But, you know, thinking out 50 years, say, will that threat rise? Could there be, and this is a bit of a far out question, but I want to at least put it to you. Could there be a war in the Arctic? Is this something that we're just not able to think through fully today, but could become a very real and true security risk in the decades to come? Can you imagine in the year 1900 being asked to tell somebody what the security environment of 1950 was going to be? I mean, and I, I say that semi-rhetorically. So in 1900, we had, you know, we basically, in some ways, the world looked like it did maybe five or ten years ago. You had a tremendous explosion of technology with the railroads, with electricity. People were, you know, beginning much better health care. The population was exploding. Europe was at peace. Nobody really foresaw that we would have not only one but two world wars. Nobody foresaw nuclear weapons, you know, the rise of the rise of the Soviet Union, the Cold War. I mean, nobody in the year 1900 could have foreseen that. So why do I go through all of that? I'm not going to tell you what the year 2070 security situation is going to be like because I have absolutely no idea. We can't even really get the security situation right in 20 years. What I can tell you is the Arctic is going to, from a uh, climate perspective, is going to continue to change. I think we are on track for seeing basically ice-free conditions in the end of summer and very beginning of September, probably starting in roughly 15, 20 years or so. Before that, I mean, the ice keeps getting thinner and thinner and thinner. We have already seen ice-strengthened, but not icebreaker, but ice-strengthened liquid natural gas cargo ships make runs across the top of Russia in February, not escorted by 
any icebreakers. They do it by themselves because the ice is so thin. So I think what we can reasonably expect to see is an explosion of trade routes, an explosion of human activity, and what I would recommend to the U.S. government, not that anyone listens, is we should use all of our sources of national power to, sh to demonstrate our interest and our interest in a secure, safe, and stable Arctic. And I don't see this administration, honestly, I didn't see the last administration either have, have a coherent uh, plan on, on how to do this. And so I'm afraid we're just sort of stumbling to the future, and when you stumble to the future, it becomes even more unpredictable. So what it's going to look like in 20, 30, 40, 50 years for the security environment, I, I wish I could tell you, Julia, but I have no idea. Admiral, thank you so much for your time. This was really informative. Appreciate it. Thanks. As we know, the Arctic Council recently failed to agree on the text of a joint declaration after the U.S. objected to any mention of the Paris Climate Agreement and a major scientific report that calls for cutting carbon emissions. Arctic nations ultimately agreed on a short and vague statement, but with no mention of climate change. The Finnish foreign minister and host of the council meeting issued an unprecedented statement saying pointedly that a majority of us regarded climate change as a fundamental challenge facing the Arctic, inferring there that the U.S. was the cause of the roadblock. We are joined now by Malta Humpert, senior fellow and founder at the Arctic Institute, to help us walk through the significance of these recent events. Uh, Malta, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Julia, for having me. I appreciate it. So can you explain why it's a big deal for the U.S. to block an Arctic Council statement? What does that even really mean? Uh, there was two aspects to why this Arctic Council meeting was the pretty unique. Um, the first aspect is that the day before the actual Council meeting, we had Secretary of State Pompeo gave a pretty strong-worded statement uh, targeted at Russia and China and their various activities in the Arctic. Uh, there was a lot of focus on the, on the security of the Arctic. Pompeo said, for example, that the Arctic should not become a new uh, South China Sea, that China was up there to um, to you know grab the resources and, and kind of be a strongman in the Arctic. Pompeo also talked about how China is bringing more and more submarines into the Arctic, more and more military activity. And that's pretty unprecedented because the Arctic Council generally doesn't concern itself with security issues. From its uh, founding charter, it can, it, it can actually not talk about security issues. It's really focused on environmental issues, cooperation, um, search and rescue, and so forth. And so coming to Rovaniemi in Finland and the day before making a, a statement that's really targeted against Russia and China was really unprecedented and really shocked uh, not just uh, you know the international community and, and Arctic experts, but really even the participants there. There was definitely... Um, quite some, you know, upset uh, people at at that meeting just because it's unprecedented. It's kind of like a it's kind of like a bull running around in a china shop. It's not what you do when you go to the Arctic Council. Um, it's been very collaborative and cooperative even in the last couple of years when there have been a lot of sanctions against uh, Russia following Ukraine. And then the second aspect of why there actually was not a joint declaration for the first time in 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 twenty three years was that the U.S., you know, under the Trump administration has really um, almost made it illegal to, uh, to, mention, uh, to mention climate change in any official, official you know, document. A couple, of week, a couple of weeks ago, the U.S. Coast Guard released a new um, strategy for the Arctic, and it's a 50-, 60-page document. And you would assume that we're talking about the Arctic because of climate change, so you would assume that in that document you would find 
the words climate change, but uh, you actually don't. And uh, you can see how the Coast Guard had to twist itself into a pretzel to uh, to kind of talk about climate change without really mentioning climate change. So there's one really nice phrase where they're saying the change in the physical environment uh, in the Arctic, which basically means climate change. And so just this uh, stubbornness um, that the, the current U.S. administration does not want to acknowledge the existence of climate change, of course, makes it quite difficult within the Arctic Council to talk about various challenges and issues. Malta, this is Brandon. You know, I'd been reading some press reports about this. Um, and so did the did the agreement fall apart because of climate change or geopolitics? What's your take? Well, the particular agreement definitely fell apart because because climate change. There was negotiations up to the you know up 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 to midnight basically up to the last hour, but um, it was pretty clear from even like a week before you know there was the first reports that most likely the U.S. would not would not budge. I guess a question on that because what's interesting in my mind is that Secretary Pompeo in some way acknowledged that climate change is real by discussing the new shipping opportunities and new economic opportunities in the Arctic, but at the same time refused to put the term climate change or acknowledge other climate change studies in the actual declaration. Does that not seem somewhat hypocritical or at least some kind of an oxymoron to, to have those two actions take place? Yes, ab- absolutely. And, and kind of what the way I the way I see it is that the U.S. kind of sidestepped climate change or kind of jumped over over the aspect of climate change and jumped straight to the security and economic implications of that. So while the U.S. is now very eager or very interested in in, in being involved in the Arctic from a security aspect, you know, the U.S. Uh, now now is financing for at least one or two new icebreakers. You know, I started a lot stronger rhetoric when it comes to. Uh, Russia and China. I think you're absolutely right that it's kind of contradictory that on one hand, there is this renewed interest of the US towards the Arctic, uh, but that interest focuses exclusively on the security and economic dimensions without acknowledging, you know, the the underlying cause for this is climate change. Malte, this is Shane. Um, as someone who, you know, talks about climate change on a regular basis, both, you know, just in conversation and as part of my job, I obviously think it's silly that that the United States would not acknowledge that climate change is a big part, if not the part, or the only part of the reason that, that the sea ice is thinning and that and these new challenges and opportunities are arising. But why does that inhibit these countries' ability to move forward? You mentioned icebreakers, for example, and I know Republicans have been pushing to fund uh, additional icebreakers since I was working on Capitol Hill, understanding that Russia has, I think, 40-plus uh, in the region, and their capabilities in the Arctic are so much more advanced than ours. Even though it is strange that we won't acknowledge climate change, why is that an impediment to taking action on some of the economic issues and some of the uh, security issues that that are sort of more at the forefront of of what we need to be worried about or, or excited about moving forward? Yeah, I think as a general as a general issue, or why it is so hard to uh, to kind of move forward with a comprehensive policy for the U.S. Uh, in the Arctic, the Arctic is just not that important economically to the U.S. So if you're looking at Russia. Uh, more than 20% of Russia's GDP is generated above the Arctic Circle. That's where the future oil and gas resources lie. And in the U.S., it's just one state out of 50 with uh, in, with a very small population. It contributes very little to the overall GDP of the U.S. So it's been really hard for the Coast Guard to convince to secure the uh, the appropriate appropriations, you know, to get a new icebreaker. Malta, so what happens next with respect to the Arctic Council? Will this all blow over, do you think, or has there been irreparable damage? So following the uh, the Arctic Council 
meeting uh, two weeks ago, the, the, the main question is how will this collaboration kind of continue? What kind of impact the Arctic Council meeting will have going going forward? It really seems that the U.S. wants to focus more on the security dimension of of Arctic cooperation or Arctic issues. And that's really not something that is being talked about within the framework of the Arctic Council. So the question really is, what does this mean for for cooperation vis-a-vis Russia and China going going forward? Will that debate become harsher? The stakes are pretty high because so far the Arctic was really shielded from um, issues or conflicts that are occurring outside of the region. So the Ukraine um, sanctions did not really affect U.S. and EU cooperation with Russia within the Arctic Council, and uh, U.S.-China tariffs uh, issues and trade disputes did not did, did not really trickle into the Arctic, or the U.S. disagreeing with China in the South China Sea about uh, border delineations did not did not really trickle into into Arctic cooperation. But this strong rhetoric and this strong stance that Pompeo took. Uh, two weeks ago, um, could really signal that outside disputes and issues that make cooperation harder in other areas of the of the world are finding their way into Arctic cooperation, and that's and, and that's a really big concern because in in order to really address the challenges of of the new Arctic, where climate change opens up new op- opportunities, there needs to be as much cooperation and collaboration as we as we can have. And so, if 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 on the U.S.'s part the the goal is to contain Russia and China's economic or security interest in the Arctic, but at the same time, the U.S. is weakening the Arctic Council through strong rhetoric, through uh, refusing to sign joint declarations. That kind of, in the long term, plays into Russia's and China's hands. So um, until now, the, Russia and China were very much constrained um, within the bureaucracy, within the structure of the Arctic Council. And if the Arctic Council becomes less relevant, then China and Russia may, in the end, become more free to uh, to drive forward economic activities without, um, you know, high environmental standards. Or China, you know, may uh, you know may make claims to to uh, economic uh, possibilities in the Arctic that they previously couldn't have made. I just want to make sure I get something correct, and then I have a question for Shane. So Malta, <laughs> let me make sure I got this. There was a big convening uh, because we have all of these. Uh, economic interests in the Arctic. And the United States goes up to this convening and blows it up because we won't acknowledge that climate change is happening. So this would sort of be like going to a big wine conference and saying we can't talk about grapes, something like that, right, Malta? Is that kind of correct? That that's yeah, that's that's that, that's a very good a very good analogy. For and then sure. and then you know Pompeo says, well, climate you know acknowledges that climate is happening because now there's all these open roots uh, because the ice is melting. So Shane, this is, how do we trust these guys to run our government? I mean, this is absurd, right? (laughs) So look, I actually, and I think I said at the top, I think it is absurd that they refuse to acknowledge it just because it seems petty, frankly, uh, from where I sit. But I guess my bigger point is not to defend uh, the behavior of the administration at all, but just to make the case that there are still very serious uh, economic opportunities and very serious security challenges that need to be addressed. And so while we would all prefer uh, for this fight or this kerfuffle uh, not to have occurred over whether or not you insert the terms climate change, the problems are very real. The threat is very real. The opportunities are very real. And I would like to see 
uh, progress, notwithstanding what terms are used to describe the nature of how we got here. But no, I don't disagree with you. I'm just saying it's weird, but it is. And so can we still try to make progress on these other big issues? Malta, uh, for your final thoughts, you know, pulling out your crystal ball, I know no one really has one, but if you had to do your best, what comes in the decades to come? That's a very good question. I think, first of all, it's important to understand that the Arctic really is the first region where climate change is changing the economic and geopolitical balance that without climate change, we wouldn't be talking uh, about this. And then the second aspect is that it is happening very, very quickly. And whenever there's rapid change, it, it presents a challenge to policymakers and you know regulations. And so the the main goal right now needs to be to ensure that whatever economic activity is occurring in the Arctic can can be done responsibly and can be done without you know causing uh, additional harm to the Arctic environment. Because it is kind of ironic that because we are putting a lot of CO two in the atmosphere the Arctic ice is melting. And as the Arctic ice is melting, we can actually get to more oil and gas, which will put additional CO2 in the atmosphere. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that as climate change accelerates, um, the Arctic will will will, will lose even, even more and more ice. Yeah, I know some people will view this as an opportunity, but in some ways, from a climate perspective, it is a poetic tragedy especially when you talk about Russia and just how important and critical the fossil fuel reserves are in the polar region, it just seems like it just makes you wonder how you can put this genie back in the bottle. Absolutely. And I think in terms of, in terms of you know, military aspects or security challenge in the Arctic, whenever there's economic opportunity and when one, can, when one country or several countries have you know, very, uh, very large economic interests, that of course brings with it uh, their interest in in potentially defending those those economic interests, uh, and so if you if you play this out, and there there's a potential war between the U.S. and China, you know, in 2075, and China is highly dependent on just a few trade routes, uh, the Arctic could potentially be an alternative. It's just another playing field, and China is playing a long you know a long term game, economic game, just like it is investing in in Africa today to reap the rewards. 20 or 30 years down the road. And that is similar with the Arctic or a potential polar silk road. And for the US, it's really it's really hard to counter uh, these kind of economic long-term uh, strategies because the US is tied up in two-year or four-year election cycles. It's really hard to, uh, to think about the Arctic 20 or 30 years uh, down the road. I mean, if you think about we lost 50% of ice in the last 10 to 15 years, and if you play that forward, um, the Arctic really could become an ice-free ocean within the next, you know, one one or two decades, and then suddenly uh, it is a new a new maritime, uh, you know, domain where the U.S. has to show presence. And currently, the Arctic is really the only the only ocean where the U.S. doesn't have assets. Absolutely. I guess what I'm really hearing uh, as a Canadian is that Americans need to be much nicer to Canadians because clearly we are a strategic <laughs> asset to them. Um, I'm just going to throw in a plug on Canada and actually end the interview on that note so no one can take issue with it. Um, not I was very just going to say, so nice to hear Malta pronounce China correctly instead of the president, China. <laughs> <laughs> well, Malta, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. And now for our final segment, If You Can't Say Something Nice, where our Democrat and Republican co-hosts have to say something redeeming about the opposing political party. Shane, you're up. Mine goes to Paul Bledsoe, who, among other things, was a climate advisor in Bill Clinton's White House. And he's been really good on sort of 
tracking these issues, communicating them in a comprehensive way, but also, you know, understanding what's achievable, what's not achievable and, and trying to keep the trains moving in the right direction. So he said uh, when discussing the Joe Biden climate plan, you know, that we all discussed last week, he pointed out the role of natural gas in helping renewables get to prominence where they are today and made the case that natural gas is going to have to be around uh, unless and until battery storage gets to the to the point where it can replace natural gas as, as a way to keep uh, intermittent resources, you know, to the, using their full potential. So I know our audience is going to hate that. I realize I'm an echo chamber on this issue, but it's it's a nice reminder for me to see that there are people on both sides of the aisle that want to solve this problem, but also understand that doesn't necessarily mean you can just shut it all off overnight. And saying that doesn't make you an awful person. It just makes you someone who wants to find a practical solution to this problem. Shane, I'd like to have a longer debate on that, but there are, are many Democrats that do agree uh, with what you said, including, I think, uh, my former boss, Secretary Moniz, would agree with much of that. So for my Say Something Nice, I um, want to give a shout out to Senator Grassley. He is the Republican senator from Iowa, and he started a task force late last week, uh, a bipartisan task force uh, with Senator Wyden from Oregon on these things called tax extenders. This sounds super boring, but it's actually very critical. There are many energy tax credits that are very helpful to energy efficiency industries and renewable energy industries that are temporary and they expire at the end of every year. And Congress plays this game where sometimes they don't extend them and then they pass them a couple months later and they make them um, retroactively uh, eligible for tax credits. And for industry who's trying to make investments into energy efficiency, into renewable energy, the unreliability and inconsistency of whether those tax credits are going to be available or not really hampers uh, investment. And so uh, Senator Grassley created a task force this week to study how can they do this in a more effective way so that we have a reliable uh, energy tax credit you know, uh, policy that investors and companies um, can have some consistency and uh, help enable solutions to climate change. So I am very happy that he's doing this. It sounds super wonky and weedy, but um, it's actually very critical to the industry. Nice. Uh, and that is our show. So thank you so much for listening. This is Political Climate. Thanks also to our producer, Victoria Simon, for helping make this show possible. And again, as always, you can find us on Twitter at poly underscore climate. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. So search for us there. And if you're looking for us in person, we're going to be at some beer garden in Germany drinking beer. <laughs> Come find us or in Austria. Vienna. Austria. <laughs> Maybe Germany too. Who knows? We'll be signing autographs. <laughs> uh, just in case you didn't want Arnold Schwarzenegger's, you know, we're available. <laughs> I have another sec- say something nice to our uh, <laughs> our sponsor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. That guy got drop kicked in the head. <laughs> it's all um, over in the Twitter. back. He got in drop the- kicked in the back. Okay, in the back. He did not move. He is like a still very sturdy, muscular guy, right? I mean, he yeah. got drop kicked and it was like nothing happened. No. It's amazing. He's like, he said, it, I thought I got jostled by the crowd. <laughs> Casual. Drop kicking a concrete wall, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Well, hopefully we'll have some words with Arnold Schwarzenegger on the podcast next week. Thanks again for listening. We're Goodbye. on Stitch too. Is it Stitch or Twitch? Neither. <laughs> Stitch is nothing. <laughs> Are you guys high? <laughs>
got hot in here. <laughs> what is Why it? are the walls is moving? Is it Twitch or Stitch? What is it? It's Twitch, but we're also on Stitcher. That's why I was confused. Oh, we're not on Twitch. I have a Twitch. <laughs> Arnold didn't Twitch when he got drop kicked in the back of his head. His Amazing. back. Okay, we're done here. 